Hey guys, just before we get started, I wanted to kind of put a swear warning because I realize I do in fact swear a lot and I just kind of want to make sure if any kitties are listening that uh, you should probably stop now if unless you're a mature child. And also I'd like to say, uh, sorry mom, <laughs> let's get started with the episode. Long May She Reign, presented to you by Aidan Fitzgerald. Oh, that was a good one. Oh, I love that. Alright. Hey guys, welcome back to the Long May She Reign podcast. I'm Aiden. I'm your host for this podcast. Today we have very, very special guest, my first ever uh, non-friends guest. I mean, of course, you guys are my friends, but you guys are the first people I've ever had on here who actually run a podcast. <laughs> oh, exciting. Yeah. So, uh, guys, this is Aubrey and Emily of the National Treasure Hunt podcast. Um, I started listening to their podcast well, a couple months ago, and you know, I've always loved the National Treasure uh, movies and now the TV show, and I was just thrilled to find a podcast who loves uh, that franchise as much as I do. So, uh, Aubrey, Emily, if you guys want to introduce yourself a little bit to the audience, and then we can get started. That sounds great, Aiden. Thank you so much for having us. We've really enjoyed having you as part of our National Treasure Hunters community. Um, for No, it's our, our pleasure. Your passion is contagious. Um, my name is Aubrey Paris, and yes, I am one half of the co-host team over at the National Treasure Hunt podcast. Um, my co-host will introduce herself in just a minute, but our story I think is a fairly fun one because we are former college roommates um, that really tried to reconnect in the past few years in by developing this podcast over our shared love of the National Treasure franchise. And it's been a really exciting ride because what started just as a for fun podcast has expanded substantially, I guess, in the last couple of years. Um, we've had some really cool opportunities. We launched a tour in Washington, D.C. Our first book is coming out in a matter of weeks. And um, we've been interviewing some actors and stuff on the pod lately. So it's really cool to be here talking to you. And um, yeah, maybe I should stop talking. Let, let my co-host introduce herself <laughs> as well. Hi, I'm Emily. Um, I'm the quieter one just in general. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, Aiden, for having us here. Um, it's been uh, a real joy to work with uh, Aubrey over the past, I don't even know how many years it's been now, um, <laughs> uh, on everything National Treasure uh, related. And yeah, we're just really excited to be here to talk about cool women. Yeah. Thank you guys so much. Now, before we get started on our topic, uh, on uh, Aubrey and Emily's show, they do a little segment before they start their episodes called Screams from Parkington Lane. And I thought it would be fun to contribute my own scream. And if you guys had any screams that you want to contribute after mine, that'd be great. I'd love to hear them. Now, my scream is that recently I found out I'm related to Charles Carroll of Carrollton. <sighs> No what? way! I'm a distant cousin of Charles Carroll. <laughs> Please elaborate. Oh my gosh, that is amazing. 
Yeah, I was doing some genealogical research, as I do. I'm really into that stuff. And uh, on this website called Family Search, it's really great. It's a lot like Ancestry, but it's free. So you don't have to pay an arm and a leg for the research. And there's this function that if you have like enough information about your family tree, it can connect you back to famous people if you look them up. And I just out of curiosity searched up Charles Carroll and I'm like an eighth cousin of his, something like that. It's really distant, but it's it was so cool to find out. I was going to say, that's not even that distant. Like, I yeah. feel like it could have been, like, a 20th cousin. Like, that's <laughs> pretty cool. Yeah. Oh, my God. Well, congratulations on that impeccable stream. <laughs> Honestly, that is hard to compete with. Um, so, for for listeners who are unfamiliar with our show, our Screams from Parkington Lane segment is sort of our semi-weekly acknowledgement that national treasure has kind of seeped into every corner of our daily lives since starting this podcast and um, it's named of course for the uninitiated after um, the pit beneath the parkington lane crypt that one of the henchmen in the first national treasure film shaw falls into to his death um (laughs) and so yeah emily and i like to like to tell some stories related to our own screams um, um, I don't know if, if I'm putting you on the spot by asking if you have one here today. No, actually, um, I, I, we've been talking about on our podcast, I feel like I've been getting better at uh, just having more screams to share. And uh, this morning I was uh, at church and I help out with Sunday school and we were making birdhouses that all the kids were painting and then I was hot gluing them together but before I could do that we needed to dry the paint and so I was using a hair dryer and I couldn't get Josh my fiance to take a picture of me with the hair dryer because he his hands had like paint and glue on them but in my head I was like that I feel like I'm like you know trying to reveal some secret map on these on these bird houses here so Oh my gosh. Well, I hope you know I'm officially mad at you for not taking that picture for our Instagram. I couldn't use hands that paint. Okay, well, Josh, do better. Uh, <laughs> um, I also have a scream um, in that, as our, our listeners would know, um, I run the National Treasure Hunt social media accounts. And um, the other day, I was on Instagram, you know, just perusing and making sure I wasn't missing any important national treasure posts. And we got a DM from our friends, our good friends, the Wibberleys, who are the um, screenwriters of National Treasure, the, the movies. And they're the showrunners for National Treasure Edge of History. And just out of nowhere, you know, they they sent us a question and they were like, did in National Treasure 2, did Bruce Greenwood have a name other than the president? And I was like, no, you know, to our to our very in-depth knowledge and all of our, you know, back channel research and whatnot, the answer is no. And they were like, oh, thank you so much. We couldn't remember. And then I said, I said, I told Emily about it. And she's like, what are they up to? And I was like, I don't know, but I wish I did. But whenever we get asked questions from like the creative team, um, that are like confirming their own recollection of their own material or asking for advice based on their material. It's a, it holds a special place in my heart. Yeah. Y'all are like the experts. That's so cool. I mean, we try, we've tried really hard. Mm. (laughs) All right. Thank you guys so much for your contributions. I really enjoyed them.
Thank you for asking. Not many people ask us about our own screams. We only ask each other. So doesn't it feel good to have someone else ask about your screams? So much so. Honestly, so when when people when people send screams in the Discord that you are a part of, um, our National Treasure Hunt Discord, it it makes my day every time. All right. Well, thank you guys so much. Now let's uh, introduce our topic. Today we are talking about Abigail Adams. Uh, second, uh, first lady of the United States and also first, second lady of the United, it's very confusing. Uh, but as a Canadian, uh, we didn't really get taught much about, well, like the presidents and like the first ladies of American history. So growing up, what were you guys taught about Abigail Adams? How did you view her? Well, I'm happy to start and that let, let, uh, Emily probably ramble about my response, um, which is very little. We, we do not get taught a lot about first ladies, at least when we were in school. Um, they, you know, a lot more emphasis is placed on the presidents themselves. And so, honestly, reading, doing my own reading in preparation for this episode, I learned quite a lot and was super impressed with her as a figure. But Emily, I, I'm assuming you had a similar experience. Oh, yeah. And uh, it, for... People, I mean, Aiden, you're probably aware of this by now, but my grasp on history is not strong. Um, so if I did learn about Abigail Adams or really any first ladies, I do not remember. Um, but it would not surprise me if it just wasn't something that was covered in our classes. I definitely, like, knew who she was. Mm -hmm. Um, like I recognize the name and like, if someone asked me like who John Adams wife was, like I knew that, but I only knew her in the context of like, oh, that's John Adams wife, which has some patriarchal connotations, but you know, yeah, that, that is why I said you might ramble a bit. I thought you might want to go off on patriarchy <laughs> for a sec. <laughs> oh, don't worry. We'll have time for a patriarchy corner. Promise. <laughs> Yes! Amazing, Aiden! <laughs> all right. Uh, now, I mean, we're all a little uninitiated about this story, so I suppose let's get into it. Okay, so Abigail Adams was born as Abigail Smith on November 22nd, 1744, to John Smith and Elizabeth Quincy Smith in Weymouth, Massachusetts. Now, of course, with her being born on the 22nd of November, she is a Sagittarius. Uh, we actually get a lot of Sagittariuses on the show. Like, it's a really popular <laughs> sign amongst the women I've done. Um, there's the likes of Catherine of Aragon, uh, Ella Montgomery, uh, Christine of Sweden. They're all Sagittariuses. I don't know if there's, like, a through line between all those women, but eh, I, I suppose you can make some comparisons. Um, I'm sure... Some people, I'm really into astrology. That's why I put this on my show. Uh, but uh, Sagittarius's are very intelligent. Uh, they're also really feisty because they're fire signs. Um, they take on pretty much any task that they uh, get into with the strength of a raging fire. They actually scare me a little bit. My uh, Both my uh, dad and my little brother are Sagittarius's, and they, they scare me just a little bit. <laughs> just a little bit. Um, I think Abigail fits, like, very well in uh, being a Sagittarius. After all, she was one of the loudest voices among women in the Revolutionary Era. Uh, not to mention she had a thirst for knowledge that she passed on to her children, which we'll talk about uh, towards the end of the episode. Uh, for now, let's get to know a bit about Abigail's upbringing and her parents. 
Now, Abigail's dad, uh, uh, John Smith, who I'm going to call uh, Will Smith. He actually had two names. He was John William Smith. Some people call him William. Some people call him John. We'll call him Will Smith because it makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> Guess your first National Treasure connection, too, besides the screams from Parkinson Lane. Mm. Because, of course, as, as folks who've listened to our podcast know, Will Smith was an initial contender to play the role of Benjamin Franklin Gates. Oh my god, I forgot that. That would have been interesting. <laughs> right? So, yes, I fully support your decision to call her father Will Smith. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, Will Smith. Uh, he was a very influential minister at the North Parish, Parish Congregational Church. Uh, he was also a farmer as well. Now, unlike most ministers, rather than uh, his preaching focusing on, you know, sin and predestination, uh, good old Will Smith liked uh, his preaching time to be dedicated to on how to be moral and reasonable. He was he was a really chill guy compared to most preachers of his time. So I'll give him that. Um, and honestly, he was very on trend with the enlightenment in his preachings, you know, instead of, you know, fire and brimstone Christianity, he was like, here's how we can be nice to everyone, you know? Um, now Abby's mom, on the other hand, was born into the very wealthy, very influential Quincy family who were basically like career politicians of their time, um, Quick side note, uh, Abby had a cousin named Dorothy Quincy who married uh, the very big signer of the Declaration of Independence, John Hancock. <laughs> so there's that little connection there. So I suppose they're uh, cousins. She's cousins by marriage with John Hancock in a way. I love that. You do. <laughs> um, Abby's grandfather, uh, John Quincy, was a member of the Colonial Governor's Council, and he was also a colonel in a militia. Um, he also served as Speaker of the Massachusetts Assembly, which was a post he held for 40 years until he died at age 77. So safe to say politics kind of ran in her blood, whether she uh, wanted to get into it or not. Um, because of her very fine background, Abigail grew up in an extreme amount of privilege where she could have gotten anything she wanted. Um, as a kid, she would have been taken care of by several enslaved people that her dad, Will, owned. Uh, According to records, the uh, Smith family owned at least three enslaved people. They didn't own a very lot, uh, many enslaved people. Um, although, unlike some other privileged women of her time, uh, Abby actually wasn't the biggest fan of slavery, which shocked me. I did not know that she was well, at least slightly abolitionist in a way. Uh, but we'll talk about her abolitionist uh, leanings in a minute. First, let's talk a bit about her education. Woo! Now, unfortunately, Abby did not receive the best education in the world, most likely because she was actually quite sickly as a child. So she spent a lot of time in bed and was never able to be sent to uh, a regular school like some other girls were doing. Um, instead, she and her sisters, Mary and Elizabeth, were taught how to read and write by their mother, as well as having access to uh, their father and grandfather's huge library collection, which honestly, low-key jealous, my library collection is not as great as what has been described about uh, Abby's grandfather and father's library collection, so jealous. Um, Abby and her sisters were able to read about world history, government, law, math, astronomy, and pretty much anything else that they wanted. If the library had it, they could read about it. Um, I also read that apparently uh, 
because obviously her and her sisters were getting uh, homeschooled together, they started a little book club, you know, to keep things fun. Uh, so they could also discuss the things they were reading amongst themselves. Um, also, now this is a fun uh, little national treasure uh, connection that I thought you guys would find interesting. When I was looking at some of the subjects that Abby was taught, apparently, and this I can only find this on Wikipedia, so it's probably not true, but apparently Abby's mom taught her ciphering, which I don't know how she would have known that. <laughs> I mean that's wild and I love it as yeah. I, I will I will mentally will it to be true. I was yeah. gonna say I'm get I'm gonna pretend that it that that's a thing. I don't I don't think pretending that that's a thing hurts <laughs> hurts anyone. If any it just makes her cool. It does. <laughs> and also if we're being fair, I mean we know from our time on our podcast, how common ciphertext was to be used by, you know, militaries and politicians and people like that, including around the Revolutionary War era. And so if, if she's from a, a political family, um, that seems to make a lot of sense to me. I actually That's wouldn't true. be surprised at all. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the rationalization I found online for that being on her Wikipedia page is that uh, later in life during the Revolutionary War, she was famous for sending uh, her husband, John Adams, uh, ciphered letters in a cipher that one of her friends, uh, James Lovell, came up with. Um, so maybe that's where that came from. Or maybe Elizabeth Quincy Smith was just cool and happened to know how to use ciphers and was like, my daughters could use this here, you know? <laughs> Either way, we'll take it. Yeah. Um, now, of course, no lady's education wouldn't be uh, complete without uh, some of the finer arts that she would have learned as a child. Uh, activities like singing, dancing, and playing cards. Uh, embroidery would have been something that she would have learned. You know, just everything that she would have needed to become a very nice wife, no matter what her husband was doing. Of course, she was destined to be a political wife, but those were assets she would have really needed to become a wife in this day. Now, as for what she looked like, we have many portraits painted during her lifetime. We're very lucky. Um, unfortunately, uh, she didn't make it to the advent of photography, but her portraits paint a very nice picture of what she might have looked like. Uh, she had very dark brown hair, brown eyes, and from what I have read, she was considered to be very pretty for her uh, time. Uh, not to mention she was short, like really short, like... 5-1 can't reach top of shelf short. <laughs> really? Yes. Uh, I I honestly pictured her like taller because like, I, I don't know if it's just me because I'm like 5-7, which is like, you know, what, like three inches taller than the average woman. But she was very tiny, which I didn't see coming. Um, do you remember when we last visited Mount Vernon, uh, which is, of course, George Washington's estate, and there's that in the visitor center, there are these like life size statues of George and Martha and the kids or the grandkids. Some. Yeah, yeah. And I remember George Washington being way taller than I expected, but Martha being <laughs> super little. So much shorter. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe it was like it's a thing. Crazy. I think I think people were shorter. I, I do think that's a thing, and that's why I was so surprised that George was so tall. Like he was taller than us for sure in that statue. But anyway, that's just what that reminded me of. <laughs> yeah, no, that reminds me. I a couple years ago, oh, not a couple, more like ten at this point. I went on a trip with my family to uh, Tennessee, and we went to go visit uh, slimy Andrew Jackson's house. <laughs> in Tennessee really? and they have a statue of him and his wife Rachel and I always knew Andrew Jackson was tall 
But his wife, Rachel, was so tiny. Their wax figures were crazy to look at because she was just so little. Oh, wow. Yeah. So maybe, that. maybe it was just a thing for, like, really short women to just happen to marry really tall men. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> okay, ladies and gents, it's time to talk about love. And when I say love, I mean Abigail and John Adams' love story is probably my favorite presidential love story ever. Because, honestly, on this show, we don't get to talk about a lot of good relationships between our subjects and their spouses. It's usually not uh, very fun. So it's really nice and refreshing to uh, read about John and Abigail's relationship because, gosh, it was just so freaking healthy. They were devoted <laughs> to each other. They actually liked each other. They were pretty good parents, as, you know, uh, 18th century standards go. So... Go, John and Abigail. I ship it. Love it. All right. So, Abby and John probably would have met for the first time when Abby was about 16 or so. Uh, John came to her house because his best friend, Richard Cranch, was actually engaged to Abby's sister, Mary. Um, and in the meeting, Abby and John just fell, like, head over heels for each other. And Abby wanted to get married to him, like, basically right then. <laughs> uh, but before Abby could even do... The proper teenage thing and like you know gaslight her parents into agreeing with her abby's mom was like what you are not marrying john adams he was just not particularly fit for someone who was half quincy you know uh although john had some interesting credentials even though uh miss elizabeth quincy smith didn't think john was right for abby uh, John was a relatively recent graduate of Harvard University and was working as a country lawyer, but country lawyer was not the vibe that Elizabeth Quincy Smith wanted for her daughter. So she was like, absolutely not. You cannot marry John Adams. Uh, Elizabeth wanted her daughter married to someone with a little more class and even commented that John's manners still reeked of the farm. Oh, burn! <laughs> Elizabeth. Uh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> uh, but in the end, it didn't matter because Abby's dad was happy as a clam to make that match. And three years later, October on October 25th, 1764, they got married at Abby's house. And her father, because he was a minister, uh, was actually the one to marry him. And I can just, like, imagine uh, Abby's mom just, like, sitting in the corner being like, I didn't agree to this. This is so annoying. <laughs> Seriously, but, like, what a poor take, right? Because of what ended up happening. Like, he becomes yeah. VP, then president, and, like, all these opportunities for for Abigail to sit in the highest positions that a woman could dream of at the time. Like, Absolutely. Mm. I, I never Googled how long Elizabeth Quincy Smith ended up living, but honestly, I mm. kind of hope she did live just long enough to see that because I would have just loved to see the look on her face when uh, the boy who still reeked of the farm ended up becoming president of the United States. Seriously. True. Um, anyway. Uh, at the end of their probably total rager of a wedding party, I'm sure it was great, uh, they actually got on a horse, like, in front of everyone at the end of the party, and then just went to John's house, which was, like, a couple miles away, and just started their life together. How, how very dramatic of them. Um, now that these two are married, let's get to know a little bit about future President John Adams, which I know he's over-talked about, but we do need to introduce him just a little bit. Ugh. You know, 
Um, now, John was about a decade older than Abigail, which is, oh, ew. But also, it's the 18th century. Like, what do we expect at this point, you know? <laughs> Honestly, for the 18th century, it's, like, not that bad. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give it to them that he's not, like, you know, 25 years older than her. Could be as old as her father. It's only, like, a decade. It's not that bad. Um, now, much like Abby's dad, uh, John. John was also named John. Uh, John at one point was a minister of a church. He was also a farmer at one point. He tried farming. It didn't really work out for him. Um, John Adams had a pretty good education. Like I mentioned before, he attended uh, Harvard Law, which is very Elwoods Woods of him. Um, now, by the time Abby married John, all he wanted to do was settle down, maybe try farming again, expand his law practice, and, you know, retire as a wealthy country gentleman. That was all he wanted to do. And that was their plan as their family grew larger. And I kid you not, nine months to the day after their wedding, they welcomed their first child. Nice. Emily, I feel like you would have thoughts on this as the as the love guru on, on our pod. <laughs> I mean, I have less, like, thoughts on it and more just like yeah that that's how that's how people did it both mm. figuratively and literally uh back, back <laughs> in the day so uh the adams welcomed their first child a little girl who they very creatively named uh abigail but they called her nabby for short i don't know where they decided to get that nickname but i i guess it's better than calling her abigail as well because we'd get all very confused um, one second can we bring back the trend of it being like normal to name the female child after the mother at or like at least as normal as it is to name the male child after the father you know it is kind of iconic I, it's just so common to I'm, okay I'm sorry not to like cross pollinator pop culture references <laughs> here but like Gilmore Girls I don't know if you're mm. familiar but like I am, yes one of the jokes is that people thought it was so weird that Lorelai named her daughter Lorelai after <laughs> herself. You know what I mean? And why is that? What? No one would have batted an eye if you, you know, you named the male kid after the dad. I'm just saying, got to bring the patriarchy in here as much as we can. And so that's my, it's my stab. I am trying to be Emily today. Yeah. To to be fair, my mom kind of did a similar thing. My middle name is June, and my mom's name is June. So. I feel like the middle name thing is, like, way more common. It's, like, a modesty Mm -hmm. thing. Like, oh, I could never name my child after myself. Well, like, hide it in the name that doesn't appear on everything. You know what I mean? Yeah, because most people don't know each other's middle names, so you're, like, never going (laughs) to know. Anyway, um, after Nabby, uh, their son, John Quincy, quickly followed this. Then their daughter, Susanna, who unfortunately died young. Uh, Then their son, uh, Charles, uh, Thomas, and finally, uh, Elizabeth, who unfortunately was also stillborn. So all in all, six kids in 12 years of marriage, which actually isn't that bad. Like, I'm glad they just didn't go like, bam, 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 one baby after the other. Six kids in 12 years isn't a bad average. (laughs) (laughs) Um, now it's during the first portion of Abby's marriage that, uh, the American Revolution breaks out, which I'm not going to, you know, go into depth. Abby didn't really have much to do with, like, the battles of the politics. I mean, she was there. She wrote letters. She was iconic the entire time. But there's really no reason to, 
properly go through the American Revolution. Uh, after all, she was so busy holding down the fort while her husband was fighting, and she was making a difference from afar. However, what I do want to talk about during the Revolution is Abby as a wife and mother, which I think is, you know, equally as important as John's contributions to the Revolution. Now, um, as I've said, Abby and John had a really great uh, working relationship, and they were literally, like, the perfect fucking match for each other in, like, every way. Uh, John really relied on her to take care of the home and the children and was very, very dependent on her political advice. Um, Abby was what we like to call in the... (laughs) history realm, uh, a Republican mother, which was something that was coined after the revolution, uh, which essentially means that as the revolution was going on, she was raising her sons to be patriots who would support the dream of the country they were trying to build and make sure these boys were being, you know, moral and virtuous and making good choices and stuff like that. And at the same time, she was teaching her daughters how to be well-educated and how to raise their own future sons to be similar to how Abby was raising their brothers. Now, meanwhile, Abby wrote her husband hundreds of letters. I couldn't even read them all. It hurt my eyes, honestly. Um... She was writing these letters to him as he was a delegate to the Continental Congress. Uh, She would offer him political advice, uh, such as her famous uh, Remember the Ladies letter, where she encouraged her husband to make sure that the rights and freedoms of the revolution be applied to women as well and allow them to make more decisions in the home as she was allowed to do. Unfortunately, uh, as we all know, women wouldn't get the right to vote or really choose anything until, like, at least the 20th century. Uh, and this is because when John got the Remember the Ladies letter, he was like, huh, honey, that's funny, lol, and ignored it. (laughs) Yeah, can't say I'm surprised, but definitely disappointed, especially because he did, he was known to take her advice and her her thinking into account on so many other occasions, Mm -hmm. like, this is the one time. I, I also, uh, remember learning how you know a lot of people think that the remember the ladies quote was specifically about the right to vote but it's actually it actually wasn't and it was it was Mm -hmm. more about the idea that like when women got married they were they went from being like their their father's property to being basically the husband's property and so they had no rights in marriage and so I thought that was really interesting and I don't know something that we could do better to share um i like yeah. i wonder how i wonder how that quote got so misconstrued to be specifically about voting you know yeah i was i was literally just about to like go on a whole tirade about that now oh please I, do <laughs> no that's all right now as much as i love abigail adams to death she is so cool she was very very for women staying in the domestic sphere she was not into the idea that women could really be much more than wives and mothers. Of course, she thought that, uh, you know, being in politics a little bit was fine, but like not getting married, not having children was just not a thing that she wanted women to do. Um, Her ideas about women's education and freedom of decision-making were only really ever going to apply to women of her class, upper class, white women like her. She wasn't really encouraging women to have the vote. Though I'm, I'm curious about like after, if we asked her like, as she was approaching death. I wonder how she'd change her ideas about that or like even like showed her the future of like what women can do in politics if she'd 
have changed her mind on that. Now, her letter has a lot of good ideas. I have read the letter a couple of times. And I understand why, like, feminists quote it a bit. Because it's, like, taken out of context. You're like, oh, I, I totally get what she's saying here. But we have to remember the audience she was writing to and the time she lived in in order to, you know, properly understand the letter. Now, towards the end of the revolution, Abby split most of her time between Europe and the temporary capital of the new United States in Philadelphia, as her husband was appointed as an ambassador to France and England in the 1780s. Now, Abby was, like, pretty obsessed with France and uh, enjoyed her family time with her uh, daughter, Abby Jr., and John Quincy. Uh, she developed a, a particular taste for French food and loved going to the theater and opera and was uh, taken aback by French fashion that was being copied from uh, Queen of France, Marie Antoinette, who hadn't quite lost her head at this point. Um, <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, no, that's all right. <laughs> that was funny. <laughs> Thank you. I'll be here all week. Um Abby also spent a decent amount of time in London, uh, which she hated in comparison to Paris. She thought it was gloomy, uh, rainy, and the people were rude. <laughs> she had a really hard time making friends in London, and the upper-class British society didn't really seem to like her very much. Uh, so she savored any chance she got to either go back to Paris or go back to America, you know, where people liked her. <laughs> Um, when back home, Abby hung out with one of her besties, First Lady Martha Washington, and more often than not was helping her uh, plan parties and balls because it was a really overwhelming task for Martha. Martha Washington wasn't really into planning big events. She, I think she was a bit of an introvert, honestly. She hated being First Lady. It was like the worst time in her life ever. Um, now, luckily for Martha, Abby had learned a thing or two about entertaining from the courts of Europe, so she put it to good use to help Martha. Um, now, I'm sure as the 1790s rolled to a close and Abby entered her 50s, she was probably looking forward to retirement until John Adams ruined her fucking retirement plan when he decided to run for president against Thomas Jefferson. And unfortunately... He won. <laughs> Darn. Um, Abby was unfortunately not able to make the inauguration of her husband because she was taking care of her mother-in-law, John, John Adams' mom, who was very sick at the time and dying. Uh, but for the rest of John's presidency, Abby hardly missed a minute of that entire thing. Um, when the Capitol was in Philadelphia, she gave large weekly dinners, uh, made constant public appearances, and was always finding events for the entertainment of the public of Philadelphia, and the people loved her for it. Abby was also super active in politics, which was a huge contrast to former First Lady Martha Washington, who really preferred to stay the fuck out of everyone's business. <laughs> Well, Abby just, like, couldn't help herself by, like, involving herself in absolutely everything going on <laughs> in her husband's cabinet. Um, she supported her husband in the passing of the Alien and Sedition Acts, which were uh, low-key, actually, no, not low-key at all. They were super xenophobic laws that uh, gave the government power to detain certain uh, groups of people during war and also made citizenship in the United States hard and also uh, sort of suppressed free speech, which is very anti-revolution. Um, then again, they're the founding fathers. When have they not been hypocrites? 
Um, although to Abby's credit, she wasn't afraid to disagree with her husband in public, such as uh, during the start of John's first term. Uh, she thought he handled the uh, XYZ affair the wrong way. Now, I'm sure you, you guys are wondering, what's the XYZ affair? Kind of sounds like something off of Sesame Street, like a song that they would have come up with. But I swear it's a real thing. Uh, basically, France was at war with Britain because, of course, they were. It's France and Britain. Um, and they had recently signed the Jay Treaty, which resolved uh, issues between Britain and America, which was making France like a little jelly, considering France and Britain were at war at the time. And France was like, America, I thought we were friends. What happened? So uh, France lashed out like a very annoyed two-year-old. Uh, and France refused to receive American diplomats and basically told uh, John he would have to pay a really hefty bribe to the French government to get their trust back in any way. Uh, many people were calling for war uh, with France, including Abby. She thought the Fran French needed to be taught a lesson. Uh, still, John was like, we just came out of war. Out of war. Um, I don't really want to do another one. We like just finished one. Um, <laughs> so to avoid uh, a real war, um, just in case it happened, uh, the Department of the Navy was created, um, and basically they kind of stopped the war by like attacking some French French ships, and the French were like, ah, don't do that again. I promise we won't declare war if you guys stop attacking our ships. And the whole thing was over in a couple of years, but Abby was really pissed that they didn't end up going to war over that, which I gotta disagree with her here. That would have been a stupid reason to go to war. <laughs> um, also, fun fact, it's called the XYZ Affair because um, some members of Congress asked to see the diplomats' reports regarding what had transpired in France, and John handed them uh, over the reports with the names of the French agents replaced with the letters X, Y, and Z because I guess he was in a silly, goofy mood that day. <laughs> um, uh, anyway, one thing I think really defines the time that the Adams had uh, in power as the presidential family was the fact that they were the first to live in the White House, then known as the presidential mansion. Now, the White House was considered kind of okay to live in at the time that they moved in. Um, at the time the Adams moved in, uh, I think John had like four months left in his term. Like he was, you know, on his way out. And let's just say their time in the White House wasn't the best experience in the world. Uh, for the most part, the place was unfinished. Uh, there was very little furniture, no decorations. Many rooms were empty. And at the time, Washington, D.C. was a new city. It was basically a giant swamp with nothing to do. It was literally like this, like, fancy palace in the middle of nowhere. But Abby tried to make the best of it. She held dinners and receptions in the White House, despite the fact that the rooms were not well decorated. Uh, she managed to hold a ball for her son, John Quincy, and some of his friends, which sounds like a modern day your mom throwing you a house party or something like that. I don't know. Um, although one of my favorite stories of Abigail living in the White House is that since many of the rooms were empty and unfinished, Abigail decided she wanted to put them to use anyway. And she asked the servants to hang her family's laundry in the East Room. <laughs> um, pretty much 
every time that their laundry was put up. Uh, Abby, uh, followed by her granddaughter, Susanna, who was, I think, three at the time and was being raised at the White House uh, after her her father died. Uh, She would go with her grandmother and they'd inspect the laundry in the East Room every day, which is, you know, really cute grandmother granddaughter activity when you don't really have anything to do in the middle of a forest very cute (laughs) um in the year 1800 john adams was up for his second term as president and was once again up against thomas jefferson for the presidency because i guess thomas jefferson just couldn't let it go that he lost um however unlike last time uh john face planted hard in the polls and was not re-elected for a second term and watch thomas jefferson of all people become america's third president Boo. now while i'm sure john was disappointed abby was ecstatic she was so upset that he was running for a second term and when he lost best day of her life i'm sure <laughs> she was so sick of her public life i mean she was so over it she was in her late 50s at this point. All she wanted to do was, like, you know, take a nap and retire with her granddaughter, Susanna, in peace. Uh, she actually wrote in her diary, this is a real line from her diary, that she was sick, sick, sick of public life. Uh, which, I mean, honestly, same. Like, my social battery runs out in, like, 30 minutes in any social situation. So, I, <laughs> I relate to Abby in this situation. Now, even though she was no longer First Lady, she still had a pretty active social life after retirement and was pretty much never far from the minds of the people in Washington, D.C. When Thomas Jefferson's daughter, Martha, died, Abigail wrote to him to give her condolences and also fix the bad relation that had uh, developed between uh, the two of them during the two very difficult presidential campaigns that they had been through and had kind of ruined their friendship john adams and thomas jefferson had been like really tight before they ran against each other for the presidency but i'm glad that they were able to fix that even if i don't like thomas jefferson very much can i jump in here really quick and say Mm -hmm. that you you asked about sort of how or what we learned about in school in terms of our own history classes and i feel like the first couple of presidents um, you get a lot of, right? And and mm-hmm. Thomas Jefferson was definitely one of the ones you get a lot of in your history classes and is kind of, at least again, when we were in school, was made to be like, martyr is a strong word, but like he was a mm-hmm. good, like he was, you know, American hero kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And can I just say how the musical Hamilton has like turned that all on its head for me personally? <laughs> like edutainment at its finest. Absolutely. It totally just like rips like the mask off of like actually what a bad and like crappy person he was. If you really want to hate him, I suggest uh, this is literally a plug for my own podcast on my podcast. Uh, Listen to my Sally Hemings episode. You will hate him more. Trust me. (laughs) Yes, I know what you're referring to. I will listen to that episode. Um. All right. Uh, she also wrote uh, several letters to her, her successor in the first lady position, Dolly Madison, and struck up quite a friendship with her, which makes sense. There are very similar temperaments. Um, they were both uh, criticized in their time for their heavy involvement of politics. I think Dolly Madison even more so in a lot of ways. Um, now, during Abby's retirement, she ended up raising several of her grandchildren because either uh, her grandchildren's parents were off, you know, doing important work, like uh, John Quincy. He spent much of his early career as a diplomat for the United States, uh, so he can, you know, 
be with his children. So he sent his sons, uh, wait for these names. I love what John Quincy decided to name his kids. Um, he sent his sons, George Washington Adams and John Adams Jr. to live with Abby. Um, wow. <laughs> I know, right? I feel like every, like, every person in this generation decided to name their kid George Washington at some point. Just like, it's also, cool. just, it's also very national treasure, right? It's very like Benjamin Franklin Gates. And it is. Patrick Henry Gates and fun mm-hmm. things like that. We, lo- we love that kind of a reference. We do. Um, as mentioned, she was also raising her granddaughter, Susanna, as uh, her father, Charles, unfortunately suffered from alcoholism. He was a really bad drunk, and he died when she was about three or four. So Abby decided to take the task of raising her to be a confident and successful woman. Um, unfortunately, in October of 1818, Abigail caught typhoid fever. And passed away in her home at the age of 73 with her husband, John, at her side. Um, apparently, her last words were, do not grieve, my friend, my dearest friend. I am ready to go. And John, it will not be long. Her husband, John, would eventually join her in death eight years later. And also, very interestingly, he died on the 50th anniversary of the signing of the Declaration of Independence. So, how very convenient for him. <laughs> Can we revisit her, like, hinting that she either had, like, a premonition about him dying or was, like, playing a long game of poisoning him for, like, eight years? <laughs> if she, oh, my like, God. Be soon? Like, how do you know that? That I never even thought about that when I wrote that down. Oh, my God. I mean, I, I also, I had a similar reaction, Emma. I was like... Oh, that's dark. Like, how do you feel if you're the if you are if you are John Adams in that moment? Like, oh yeah, I, I hope to see you again soon. But also, like, am I gonna die soon? Like, what? <laughs> I I really hope she was just trying to be romantic, but like, also, it's kind of interesting to think that she might have been poisoning him during the long game. Just like, I don't want to be separated from you. I'm gonna make sure you die soon. <laughs> Iconic. Okay, uh, let's talk legacy, which is honestly just so hard to wrap my head around because, my goodness, there's a lot to talk about. Uh, Let's start with Abigail's children. Now, many of her children actually became pretty successful thanks to their uh, mother's guidance. Uh, John Quincy quite literally became president of the United States and had a very distinguished career as a diplomat before becoming president. I'd love to know more about him because he seems very interesting. Um, Abigail's son, Thomas, worked as a secretary and a lawyer during his brother's presidency and also served as the American diplomat to the Netherlands for a while. Um, Abigail's daughter, Abigail Jr., became a very successful wife and mother before unfortunately dying of breast cancer at the age of 48, which is really sad. Um, Abigail's son, Charles, uh, unfortunately died due to his alcoholism and left his young daughter behind because of that whom Abigail raised. Um, Abigail has been considered one of America's first feminists, which is a moniker I don't entirely agree with. I mean, for her time, certainly yes, but by the standards of feminism now, I wouldn't really say so. But she did promote female education and giving women more choices. Uh, She still did want women to really be wives and mothers. Um, She didn't really seem to support women voting or anything like that, but many of her policies were definitely more forward-thinking than the average woman of her time. Uh, Speaking of being forward-thinking, Abigail was 
adamantly against slavery and considered it to be an evil that went against the ideals of the revolution and the American experiment. Uh, she even once paid personally for a young black boy who came to her door asking how to read to go to an evening school because she believed that despite his skin color, he deserved an education as much as the next person. Abigail was also a prolific letter writer, even more than her husband, which is impressive because he wrote a lot. Um, I mean, she wrote about nearly every aspect of her life, and it's because of this that we know so much about her and her personal feelings. And I'm I'm just going to say this. I think she was personally one of the greatest letter writers in American history. I'm just going to put that out there. Uh, thank you guys so much for joining me on this episode. I hope you guys had fun. <laughs> yes, I, I feel like... There's so much. We really enjoyed listening and and learning along with you about Abigail Adams. I mean, she, while not directly relevant to National Treasure, I think anyone who has watched and enjoyed the National Treasure movies um, might recognize a similarity in the name Dr. Abigail Chase, who is Mm -hmm. one of our key protagonist who was in fact named in part after Abigail Adams. Like that was the intent of the creators. She was named after Abigail Adams and Samuel Chase. Um, So really loved being able to learn more about her today. It's awesome. Well, I really appreciate your guys' collaboration. And as for the audience, I will see you guys in two weeks with a brand new episode. Goodbye. Hey guys, thanks for listening. If you have any suggestions for topics, you can just DM me on Twitter at LongMasonRain2. The N at the end of rain is replaced with a 2 instead. I'm also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor, and like a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on all those platforms. It really actually does help the show so much and it will help me grow my audience. So I would absolutely appreciate it if you you guys could do that. All right. Uh, bye.